Those of you who grew up in a Christian household and were steeped in its language and customs will be familiar with the imagery of Jesus the Good Shepherd. Personally, I've never cared for the pictorial imagery this has produced, which is not to say I don't have a very deep resonance with, say, the 23rd Psalm. On the contrary, that's a central component of my piety. I return to it all of the time. My problem has been with what I'm going to refer to as the saccharine art. One famous depiction has a well-coiffed and quite white Jesus with a sheep around his neck, and others display sheep at his feet, a sort of rugged Aryan prototype of manly, compassionate regard for a subservient species. There was a period of time in, in certain parts of this country where one of these depictions hung prominent in the living room or hallway in many homes. It's been an immensely popular image within American Protestantism over the last at least a hundred years, if not longer showing up in nearly as often in stained glass as images of Mary shows up in Catholic homes and churches. Well, now, apart from my condescending sensibility about this art form, I realized long ago that my main issue is that I have a problem identifying as a sheep. I think the images were meant to remind us of who's who and what's what, of the proper ordering of things, and then help us remember where our true help is to be found in any time of need, which is all completely useful and appropriate piety. Still, it's hard for me to identify with sheep. They seem so supremely stupid, clumsy, and passive. My whole being rebels against this identification, even and maybe most especially when I am stupid, clumsy, or passive. There's no question that as presented in our gospel lesson, Jesus wants his followers to know him as the good shepherd. As simple as that sound, his disciples didn't understand what he was saying to them, as the story is told. That's exactly what our text said. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And now, really, it's hard to grasp what was so difficult with the concept. That is, until I recognize my own inner rebellion. Sheep, of course, were ubiquitous in first century Palestine. Jesus' early followers would have been very well acquainted with their relative intelligence. I'm thinking that perhaps I share the same problem those disciples had. The specific behavior Jesus identified was the sheep's patterning on the voice of their shepherd, because that's what sheep do that voice they would recognize and follow. He distinguishes that voice from counterfeit voices, and as such, the passage, I'd say, teaches us something about authentic leadership. Who has it and who doesn't? 
And this functions on at least two levels. First, discovering Jesus as the truest leader. And second, in the time the gospel was written, maybe, you know, 70 or 100 years after his death, the problem of identifying authentic leadership in the contemporaneous culture. And in that, we have precisely the same agenda as those first readers, locating authentic leadership. Now, I would assert that every single person in this room exerts leadership in the world. Of course, some of you have roles that name this specifically. Others of you don't. But none of us can escape the fact that as we act in our world, we impact our world. And to that extent, I'm saying, we exert leadership. When we claim, as we do in our mission statement, that we strive to love our neighbors as ourselves, we could say that's a component of our definition of leadership. That's what a Christian leader, if you will, does. Actually, loving our neighbor is in tangible ways impacts our world in a particular fashion, doesn't it? And it doesn't matter what the official title that accompanies our various roles out there beyond these walls. And it doesn't matter whether we think of ourselves as leaders or not in the traditional sense. We're all the same in this regard, quite frankly. So in this sense, we might say the Christian faith is all about the training of leaders patterned on our namesake. His voice is the one we are to follow. His ways are to become our ways. So the leadership we practice here begins with submission to a certain shepherd, we say. Submission requires a quality of humility, a willingness to compare our ways with his ways, and then choosing to bend our ways to his. In my doctoral work, I researched and wrote about leadership. That's what my Ph.D. is in. And when I began that study 12 years ago, leadership studies were riding a cresting wave of interest, including my own. It fascinated me. It still does, the whole idea of it. And while there has been a lot of good work on the subject, I have become circumspect about all of the leadership palaver that's been generated on the topic. For one thing, interestingly enough, there is no general agreed-upon definition of leadership. It's interesting, isn't it? One very well-known scholar doing her own research has encountered, she reports, more than 2,500 different definitions of what a leader is or what leadership is. And yet, as we scan the horizon of our national culture across disciplines from church to business to politics, 
I would ask, do we see evidence that we have benefited from all this investment in leadership studies? Interesting question, isn't it? I say the jury is out. According to Parker Palmer, a leader is someone with the power to project either shadow or light onto some part of the world and onto the lives of the people who dwell there. A leader shapes the ethos in which others must live, an ethos as light-filled as heaven or as shadowy as hell. A good leader is intensely aware of the interplay of inner shadow and light, lest the act of leadership do more harm than good. I think, for example, of teachers who create the conditions under which young people must spend so many hours. Some shine a light that allows new growth to flourish while others cast a shadow under which seedlings die. I think of parents who generate similar effects in the lives of their families, or of clergy who do the same thing to entire congregations. I think of corporate CEOs whose daily decisions are driven by inner dynamics, but who rarely reflect on those motives or even believe they are real. Now, I like this this idea of casting shadow or light. I like that in relation to considering what leadership is. That's a concept that pertains to all of us, regardless of our individual vocations. We could ask it this way. Are you a light caster or a shadow caster? And under which circumstances are you? Either one. I bet if you were honest with yourself, you are both. And yet, as we work our way into the world of greater maturity and following after the way of our shepherd, what is the inherent call but to become a light caster? Two weeks ago, here, I was reminded of this as I was preparing this. We celebrated the life of Inez Grant, who was just shy of 93 years old when she passed away. Inez was a beloved member here for many decades. And Inez did not fit traditional definitions of leader, as we normally think of it. But at her funeral, this sanctuary was filled. She's 93. This sanctuary was filled with people because, I would tell you, she was a light caster of the first order. She knew her shepherd and listened to the sound of his voice. And of course, if you knew her, she would be all too ready to tell you that very thing. Now, interestingly, in a men's connection group this past week, of which I was participating, the conversation turned to Inez, which was actually an interesting twist to observe. Why? Well, now, as it happens, all of these guys, all of them were successful white guys. Each would be thought of as a leader in their respective occupations, and, I would add, a potential prototype 
for those shepherd images I mentioned earlier. Those that knew this 93-year-old Jamaican lady tried to explain her specialness and how she had mentored them. And at one point, one of the guys asked, what was it that brought so many people to her funeral? And then, sort of under his breath, he said to no one in particular that he wanted to build a life that mattered like that. The rest of the guys, I'm not even sure, heard him say that. But I did, and I made note of it, because it was deeply sincere. It didn't occur to me at the time to say this, but an honest answer to his question was, she listened to the voice of her shepherd. And after listening, she expressed that tangibly in how she ordered her life. Her generosity, though she had very little material means. Her desire to help whomever, whenever, wherever she could. She would hug you or pray for you at the drop of a hat. Now, Inez could also be difficult and stubborn as hell. But there is no question she knew her shepherd. And it showed up in the content of her life. For those of you that that did not know Inez, you catch the sense of someone anchored in humility, yet profoundly self-assured and self-possessed of an inner confidence because her faith was so bedrock, so alive simultaneously and dynamic. Her words and actions were completely synchronous. There wasn't any gap at all there. Have you ever met anyone like that? When you do, it changes your life because you're in the presence of an authentic leader. I tell you, she's absolutely a first-rate leader in my book. She was a leader in how to live a life that matters. And this did not require any of the typical accoutrements and falderall we associate with celebrity leaders. Not a lick of that. In fact, I would tell you that if she had a lick of that, there would have been a gap between what she said and what she did, I suspect. She was a lover. That's how she spent out her life. And it mattered. And you can do that too.